Welcome to 801 Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage's Call to Action series. Tonight in the pod bar, we welcome Ruby Perez. And as usual, we have Herman, John, and me, Jen. All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to 801 Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage. Today, we are joined by a very fabulous guest that we are very lucky to have her on the show with us. Uh, so I will allow her to take it away and give us a, a quick introduction of yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Ruby Perez. Um, I am a rising senior at the University of Michigan. I am an acting major and I'm from the Bay Area in California. Awesome. Great. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we welcome you on. Uh, if you don't mind, Ruby, please correct me if I got them wrong, but your pronouns are? She and they. She and they. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so Ruby, we're about to talk a lot about you, so I figured we kind of start us off with a, a little bit of a warm-up. Uh, think of it as a little bit of an active warm-up here, and we're going to do uh, a series of rapid questions, Okay. The rules to the game here are you're not allowed to think. It's just the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. That's that's what you're going to answer on this question. And, and this is how we're going to get to know a little bit more about who is Ruby. What makes her tick? OK, are you ready? Are you are you <laughs> yes. clear on the rules yeah. here? Great. Yes, ready to okay. go. We'll, we'll, we'll ramp you up. Starting off easy. Favorite color. Purple. Favorite number. Three. Favorite show that you've performed in? <laughs> Thinking. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> oh man, this is hard. <laughs> um, it's gotta be, um, why is the name not coming to me? Uh, it was written by a professor at my school. Okay, uh -huh. there's a tie. One was, it's called Flint and it was about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And the other one is called The Highest Heaven. And that oh. was written by um, Jose Cruz Gonzalez. Okay, great. Favorite food? Mexican food. Reminds me of home. <laughs> it's a very broad topic, but we'll skip over that. Uh, <laughs> favorite role that you have played? Uh, Nina and the Seagull. But that was just for an assignment in class. It counts, counts. What is the first show that you ever saw? Um, on Broadway, Waitress. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Uh, okay, favorite Broadway show? Uh, I don't want to be basic and say Hamilton, but for some reason, that's the first thing that came to my mind, and I'm kind of mad that that that's what happened, but um, I want to say actually Hair. Hair is my favorite like Broadway musical. Okay. And I love To Kill a Mockingbird. That's my favorite play that's on Broadway. Nice, nice, very cool. Okay, uh, you mentioned favorite food is Mexican. You are also of Mexican descent. Yes. Uh, and I read your bio, favorite mariachi song. Uh, Mi Ranchito. Mi Ranchito, classic. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you had a choice between wings or a tail, what would you pick? Wings. Yeah, that's the best choice. One's useful and one's just <laughs> extra. You can hang around. You can hang around on tail. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you. Everything goes your way. What is the? What is your dream job? I want to be a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> Great, great, great. Love it. That is it. You survived. You did yes. pretty well. Yeah. Very minimal thinking. Good job. <laughs> I think some of those answers were lies because I just said the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> my favorite number is definitely not three and my favorite color is not purple. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you get put on a spot. There. So that's good. That's good. Thank you. So thank you for playing along. Uh, good little warm up here to the episode. Uh, now that we've we've kind of loosened up our, our, our vocal muscles, our, our brain muscles here, uh, we're very intrigued, very eager to 
learn more about you. Um, and I think uh, Jen's going to kick us off here. So Ruby, I'm really just curious where this all started for you in terms of advocacy and, and its intersection with theater and your career. Totally. So as I mentioned earlier, um, home is the Bay Area in California. I've got three siblings. Um, I'm first generation. My parents didn't go to college. My grandparents didn't even go to school at all. Um, in our household, we spoke Spanish as well as English. And I can tell you the moment where this whole mess began, um, when I learned I wanted to be an actor was when I, um, my mother pushed me to audition for the musical in high school because my personality was too big for my home. <laughs> and so where was all this energy going to go? Um, she should do the musical, right? And so I got cast as Diana Morales on a chorus line. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and my mom brought, so we're of Mexican descent. Um, my, my dad is from Mexico. My mom brought her friend, her Puerto Rican friend to uh, opening night of the show. And um, I'll never forget that I came off stage and down the stairs and um, my mom was there with her friend and her friend was crying. And I didn't understand why she was crying. It's, it's not a sad show. And she just, the only thing that she said to me was, I saw you up there and you reminded me of when I was a little girl. Like you reminded me of when I was that age. Um, and I don't think that she had much in common with the character other than she was um, a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx. And it kind of just clicked in my head in that moment. I was 15 years old that that was probably the first time she had ever seen someone that reminded her of herself. Um, and that that's probably why she was so moved. And it was like a really hard, but good feeling. And I just knew that I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to keep showing people something that they hadn't seen before, um, that they could connect to. And I think that that's where all the acting and the activism began. So that's a high school. So fast forward to, to college. Talk to us about college and sort of your experience, both maybe trying to get into college and while you're actually at Michigan. Sure. So um, I think when I was 15 in that moment, I was like, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to keep acting. And so um, then the time rolled around for college. And as I mentioned before, my parents didn't go to college. And so, you know, they were not much help, um, not only because they hadn't gone to college, but like it was so unconventional, the path that I chose to take. Um, and so I booked a flight and I went to Chicago Unifieds all by myself. <laughs> and I had scheduled 10 auditions for that week that um, schools were gonna be in the Palmer House in Chicago. And I stayed with a friend and her family in an Airbnb, not too far from the hotel. And my first audition on a Monday morning was for my dream school. And I remember being in the info session showing up and I was the only person in that information session without an adult. I was the only person who didn't have like a parent or just someone with them at all. I remember looking around and thinking, oh my God, whoa, I am actually here by myself. And like, I guess I hadn't registered in that whole process of me applying and making these plans to be here that that's what actually it was going to be. Um, and at that first audition um, for my dream school, the person who was auditioning me asked me how I was going to pay for the school if I got in. And that was just the beginning of a week full of microaggressions in the audition rooms. Um, during that week, another woman, uh, I had done, I had a backup monologue that was from a play written by a Hispanic playwright. And we got to, somehow we got to talking about the play after I had done that um, audition for her or the playwright. And I think I remember a point where she took out a piece of paper and a pen and started like writing down the playwrights that I was talking about because she somehow couldn't do the research on her own about Latin playwrights. And so it was the perfect opportunity um, to ask that question when I was in the room. Um, and so in a lot of spaces, I feel like we weren't talking about me. We were talking about my Mexicanness, um, except at Michigan. Um, when I was auditioned by the head of the program, we had a, um, 
we had a conversation that was actually initiated by me about activism. I wasn't assumed to be an activist or, you know, someone who was going to need a scholarship or anything like that. Um, and because those assumptions weren't there and I kind of just I had agency over the conversation, um, I felt seen and that feeling stuck with me. And so when I got in, I really, when I made, when I was in the decision-making process, I let that feeling be my guide for sure when I chose Michigan. Ruby, uh, <clears throat> because I too am of Latin descent, uh, I'm Colombian more specifically, uh, I wanted to ask you, because uh, you talked about your, your, that moment that you had when you were 15 years old, uh, and that, that thought that you just shared, uh, for the stereotypical 15-year-old, that's, that's a very adult thought process to make that connection, that that's why uh, the, the, your Puerto Rican friend uh, was, was reacting that way. And then fast forward in college, you're, you're alone in that space, in, in your audition space, in that information session. Um, and ultimately you go to college. Talk to us a little about your, where your parents are in this whole moment. I mean, I know where they were physically in the story, but, but mentally, uh, I bring that question up because I, I know kind of like my parents' thoughts about college and whatnot, um, and especially majoring in the path that you chose to major. So speak to us a little bit about that and, and how that affected you or not. Yeah, and I'm sure you understand this. It's so complicated for them. And I've always just tried to have grace, a lot of grace with them because um, I can't imagine it's a brand new world. It's, um, I'm opening them to things that they probably never thought that they were gonna, um, that was gonna be put in front of them for sure. Um, when I decided that I was going to Michigan, um, that was only because I talked to a lot of different family members and friends who <laughs> had to sit my parents down and, and try to explain to them what it meant for me to have gotten into that program, for me to be one of 30 chosen out of over 100 people. I think a lot of people told my parents that um, they were wrong in letting me go. And so I think that they faced a lot of conflict and like people telling them that this is the right thing, but then other people, more old fashioned, um, traditional members of our family telling my parents that they were wrong letting me go so far and that bad things were gonna happen to me and that a 17 year old has no business moving across the country. And so I think it was like really conflicting for them. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to even process because I know that they have sacrificed their whole lives so that I could be in a position of bettering myself and following my dreams and doing what I love. But at the same time, I don't think that even to this day, they truly understand that like me being there is not because like I'm trying to like blow anyone off or be lazy or like just have fun and not work hard. Um, but it's because it's like my passion and I want to make it into work and do that work for the rest of my life. So it's really complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yet, yet what they haven't realized, but I'm sure soon will, is that you, you are still fulfilling their dream. Uh, um, you are still better in yourself. You, you're still, thanks to them, uh, will be having a better future. And that was their end goal. Um, what I wanted to make clear to our listeners is not only have you gone out of your home state to school and deal with the normal fears and whatnot of going away to college on your own, uh, but you're also kind of have the burden of your family at that point on your back, uh, the burden of your parents there. And as much as we want to be independent, I know it's also kind of difficult to be like, I, I still want to be supportive of my own parents, but at the same time, I want to fulfill my dream. Yeah, right, so. definitely. And <clears throat> yeah. it's a lot of things. It's a lot of guilt that I still carry about having made the decision to go so far away from my family. There's the, hey, reminder to do the FAFSA. Or like, oh, um, I guess I have to figure out how to do the FAFSA <laughs> this mm -hmm. year. Um, things like that. 
mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. that you look around and the people around you, especially in BFA conservatory style programs, um, that the people around you are like, what, you know, <laughs> or just like could never imagine like having to figure out you've been there and you figured th- those things out. And sometimes I take a step back and I'm like, whoa, I may or I don't want to assume that I'm the only one who is thinking about seven things at the same time, but like, that's kind of how it feels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yet another layer that's going to inform who you become and and how you think and how you process things. Um, Okay. Thank you. So what's the moment, Ruby, for you at, at Michigan where you just couldn't continue, continue in the mode you had, you had been in, where you felt like you had to, to talk about change with, with the program there? Sure. I'm going to talk to you about um, my freshman, sophomore, and junior year, because I definitely think it was a buildup of a lot of moments. Um, so in my first year, I experienced a lot of culture shock. I left my Mexican little community and I went to a predominantly white institution. Um, and my internal struggle was that I went to college for resources that no one in my family had access to, but just ended up finding out that I was going to have to create opportunities for myself if I wanted to learn what it was actually going to be like to be me, to be a person of color in this industry. Um, I went to a teacher one time and asked her for some recommendations, um, plays, roles that she could see me in. And she handed me a stack of Jose Rivera plays. And my struggle in that moment was like, okay, I just told you that like my favorite role I've ever played was Nina, like Nora's on the list of like dream roles, like, uh (laughs) uh-huh. But there was kind of this, I think what, what kind of softened all of those experiences was that there was like this collective trauma. It's that there was like, oh, like a senior who's Puerto Rican and like a junior who's like half Colombian. And like, they, um, you know, they heard the same things in that office in that teacher's office. And so those things made me feel less alone. Um, I wasn't the only one trying to explain to my teachers how they made me feel. And so that kind of, made it more excusable, if that makes sense, in my brain. A lot of what happened in my first few years is I would go to their offices, my professors, and they would just say that they didn't mean for things to be perceived the way that I was taking them, which I'm pretty sure is gaslighting, but it's hard for me to even put it into that category because they, I know that they didn't mean to gaslight me, and that none of us just had the tools to be like, hey, I'm trying to talk to you about something that is a product of these racial dynamics. And you don't understand that my problem is a result of that. And like, I think that I understand that that's what's going on here, but I don't have the tools to like directly confront you about that because I'm scared of you. Um, but now after all of this, after so much has happened, I can see exactly what, what all of these interactions were all these things that I chalked up to nothing. Um, And so in that first year, I definitely didn't overcommit myself to the activism, not at all. I think I was so blindsided by the opportunity it was to be at Michigan. And so I was just really silent. Um, My sophomore year is the year that I started pursuing the community action and social change minor. And in a course that I took, a foundations course for the minor, Uh, I used an example in class when we were coming up with like scenarios and like, how do you confront someone when they're being oppressive? Like things like that. I used an example of a time that a professor forced me to do an accent, a Mexican accent in front of my peers. And it was something that I didn't even think about twice because no one in my classroom cared when it happened. Like I felt so isolated in that moment that like my teacher put me on the spot like that in front of everyone. But like, I looked around and like, everyone was fine to resume as if that didn't happen. And so it just kind of came out one day in class when I was obviously not in the drama department, but in a safe that a space that I deemed a lot more safe, um, which was in my social work class. And um, 
my teacher was like, you should organize a strike in the department and uh, hold your professors accountable. And I kind of laughed it off. I thought, no way. Like, I don't know. I just, I can never do that. Like, no way. Like, it would ruin my standing and like all of these things. But an idea was planted in my head. Um, but I just, I guess I wasn't ready and the world wasn't ready that year. Um, and my sophomore year was also the year that I um, started creating opportunities for myself and for other people. I directed a, uh, a cabaret through the student theater organization. And that was dedicated to, um, to like uplifting Latinx voices. We did monologues and spoken word pieces and dances and scenes and everyone made food. Um, my South American friends brought like platanos and like uh, arroz con pollo. Um, and I don't remember what I made, but it was kind of just like an experience that we brought to like the rest of the students in our department who like aren't Latinx. And so it was like really fun for like us to be able to perform pieces that like, obviously we were never gonna be seen, we were never gonna see on our main stage productions because no one's gonna direct this. None of my white professors are gonna direct this Latinx piece. Um, and so we kind of just brought it together and uh, made this show. And so it was fun on our end to be able to like perform these roles that we knew we were never going to get the chance to like uh, to do at Michigan, but also to have like other people come and like be a part of that experience that was like so close to home for us. Um, and what else did I do my sophomore year? Uh, that's when I started. Uh, working with the prison creative arts project to uh, to create theater workshops and perform them in prisons. And that was a very moving experience where I just kind of, I feel like I learned a lot about our, our flawed criminal justice system. And uh, I feel like we, at least in the, in the acting curriculum, what I've experienced so far at Michigan is that we talk a lot about humanity and empathy and all of these things that are great and wonderful, but until you can really put yourself in a place where people's humanity has been stripped away from them, um, I don't think that you can really understand like the core of those principles that you know are taught every single year in acting class. So I enjoyed doing that a lot. Um, but yeah, that was my sophomore year. That's when the wheels started turning, for sure. I think we, we got to give a little shout out to that teacher that planted that seed. Uh, simply got to give credit where credit's due in the fact that you don't really hear stories of teachers provoking that sort of movement and those sort of ideas. So uh, shout out to that person for doing that to you. Um, so that's, so that's great. So you're, so now you're, as you said, the, the, the gear started turning, you're very much in this activism mindset. And, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about the mindset because as we know, since probably for the last year, actually, uh, our, our industry has received many uh, activist movements. Uh, many of them have manifested in letters, call to actions, the man list. Uh, they come under different names, whatnot. But um, I'm interested to know in that mental headspace that you were kind of in, uh, especially someone at your age, uh, uh, especially being female, uh, as well, it's very quick and very easy for somebody older to be like, oh, she's just kind of snap. She's just acting out, right? She's just, she's just upset. It's, it's going to go away, mm -hmm. right? Let's just ignore her. Um, and I'm sure you, you thought about that, that, that they would think that. Yeah. So it's kind of like an obstacle that you, you knew ahead of time that you had overcome. You knew how they were going to predict. So how do you uh kind of control yourself in a way emotionally to not come out as an outburst but yet as 
a rational human being that wants mm-hmm. to be heard and that actually has something important to, to say. Yeah, I really resonate with that um, because for so long, um, while all of this, everything that I'm telling you where the wheels were turning, from the outside, what my professors were thinking of me and saying about me was that I was so nice. Oh, Ruby, she's so sweet, she's so nice. And that's because I let people walk over me all over those years, (laughs) all those years, say these things, do these things. And I was always quiet, always. I'm probably the last person they expected to drop the bomb that I dropped on them. Um, But I also wanted to share before I talk about the summer, the last thing that was kind of like almost set me off, but I was still that nice quiet girl that they all knew and loved very well, um, was that we did a Spanish language play. It wasn't necessarily about Mexican folks or people of color. It's just, it was a Lorca play and he was a Spanish playwright. And um, there were a few times in the university production in the rehearsal process that I would get pulled to the side and be asked if Um, the Spanish sounded authentic, or if A, B, C, whatever, all of these questions. And in the moment, like it felt so uncomfortable and I couldn't put my finger on why. And then the summer of 2020 happened. This was between my sophomore and junior year. It was a very heightened summer, Um, a lot of tragedy. Um, And Ultimately with COVID and all of these things, I was wondering if I should go back to school at all because it's expensive. And, you know, in my mind, I can't afford a wasted year. Um, And so I talked to some teachers on the phone actually. And one of them told me, yes, we need your activism this year. You know, with everything that's been going on, we need your activism. And that was so surprising to me because that was a teacher, that was one of those teachers who had been, what I can now call, what I can now see was gaslighting Um, telling me all of a sudden that like everything that I had complained about before was suddenly important. And why? Because it was important to the rest of the world because everyone had a Black Lives Matter sign posted on their their window. So of course they need my activism now. Um, But of course I didn't see it that way in that moment. And I was just like, oh yeah, they need my activism. Um, And then I saw the We See You White American Theater demands and I read through them and finally like fleshed out in front of me in the form of demands, I could see things that I had experienced. I could see things that like, I was never able to put words to or like point my finger and be like, yep, that's what happened. Like that's the experience. And that's why we needed a cultural consultant in that Spanish language show because somebody gets paid to do that work or, um, just so many things, so many things. It was kind of like, it was a very beautiful moment to me when I finally got to pick up those demands and like connect to them. Um, Because I feel like it gave me the tools to do what what came next. Um, And so I decided to go back my junior year and at pretty much the top of the year, there was a graduate student strike at the University of Michigan. And of course, with the BFA culture that I talked about earlier, oh, let's just act like nothing's going on. Um, Let's just act like the graduate students aren't striking and they don't need our help and just come to class. And let's just ignore the fact that we're crossing a picket line because it's virtual. And, you know, we still have to be a BFA conservatory program. And uh, I remember going into class and I was like, absolutely not. Like, can we talk about this? And so, um, you know, just like other departments around the country, we're doing. Uh, We kicked the teacher out of the Zoom call. We were like, hey, can we have five minutes? And in those five minutes, me and my junior class decided that we were going to organize a strike because we were just like, what is going on? Everyone was so shaken up. We hadn't had the opportunity to connect with each other and talk about how crazy it was that they were requiring us to like audition for a U-Prod when like it was the height of COVID numbers. Like none of it made sense. And so we decided we were going to organize a strike. We kicked the teacher out. When he came back five minutes later, we were like, hey, we're popping onto a different call to like do some work. Uh, We'll let you know what happens. So we went and onto the other call and all 20 of us, um, we just started writing demands. I was like, hey, we're talking about a lot of stuff. Can we just start writing it down? 
And so I started writing it down and gave everyone Google Doc access and we created like a four or five page list of demands, um, mainly about issues with um, students of color in the department, um, issues of hiring, things about cultural consultants, when students audition, who's in the audition room, choosing the cohort for next year, um, who is choosing what shows we're doing on our main stage, um, decolonizing the curriculum, all of those things. But we also had some conversations that needed to be had about COVID and how we were acting like um, there wasn't a global pandemic and everyone could just audition for the play and, and be in the play as if we weren't experiencing this thing that was altering how we were all going to school. And so the COVID things were more like immediate demands and everything else, of course, with hiring and all of those things, that's not going to get done in the first, that can't get done in the matter of a few weeks or even a few months. Um, and so we broke our document into a short term list of demands and a longer term list of demands. And I remember typing up the email for the whole department, for all of the design and production students, for the um, all of the faculty and staff, everyone. And having this one moment before I hit send that was like, oh my God, is this gonna affect my scholarship? Like, is everyone gonna hate me? And like, I am never gonna have opportunities. Like, am I ruining myself by doing this? Like I had that moment and then I was like, for some reason, what has always kept me doing activism when it gets exhausting or when I feel like I shouldn't be choosing the battle is I always think about future generations. And I was like, Ruby, if you don't hit send on this email, somebody else is going to have to do it. Like, it's just going to be more years. There's going to be more like trauma bonding between all these students and someone else is just going to have to do it. And why would you make someone else like you have to do something like this? And so I sent that email that night and, um, well, the um, demands were met with a lot of um, anger. Some people decided to retire, to quit, to leave. And all of that really shook me because I was the face of this change literally just because I sent an email. And it felt like I was the reason that other people's careers were changing so fast before they had anticipated. And that didn't really feel good. Um, before you go on with the the how you start going down on yourself and and the anger that you felt and and the anger that people received your letter in uh i want to take a moment to do a nice little slow clap to you uh first and foremost for having the courage to stand up to these things to be the face of a, a group of, of your age, of your generation, to be advocates for future generations, to even think about future generations, uh, and to have that moment to say enough is enough, um, and, and to stand for your beliefs for the, uh, on behalf of others, uh, on behalf of all those marginalized uh, in a PD, PWI situation. Um, so, we, we need to acknowledge you and what you did. So congratulations for that. Regardless of what you're about to go into and tell us all the negativity now, we need to acknowledge that no matter what you're about to tell us, this greatly outweighs what came afterwards, what you did in that moment greatly outweighs all that. So congrats to you. Uh, congrats to your classmates that, that did this. Uh, with you and that joined in and uh, that had the forethought to put this into a, a rational list, um, a comprehensive list, and also something that, in all honesty, doesn't need to be done. It's not your job to kind of dumb it down for others that just don't get it. Um, so you, you definitely went above and beyond. So I, I congratulate you for all the courage that you showed. Thank you. Um, now I do want to go into that negative space momentarily, just so we educate ourselves just for context purposes, but it's not to negate anything that you did. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
it's very confusing is all I can say about it because um, a staff, one staff member replied almost immediately and said, thank you for this love offering. And that has always resonated with me, a love offering. Of course, this is a love offering. I just told you how to do <laughs> everything we're complaining about. Like I just told you exactly what we want and I'm not asking you to do it tomorrow. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't come to the school, none of those things, you know? And um, so I love that someone said that to me. Thank you for this love offering. I'll never forget that. Um, but then other people accuse me of, of bullying and saying that my leadership wasn't inclusive, just trying to nitpick at little things. Um, I mean, it's hard to organize, especially when you're a student, a full-time student. Um, I don't know. I mean, some incredible things happened, like alumni signatures were on that list of demands. Um, over 100 people signed it. I mean, we had design and production majors caring about problems that mostly pertain to actors. And it was just beautiful, the work that I think happened in just at, like pretty, pretty much two days. Yeah, I think the same day that I had that acting class, that night, the, lit, the demands got sent out to our faculty. And um, so it wasn't pretty figuring out um, what to do next. None, that was never pretty or nice. And um, it made me feel really terrible. But um, then the following semester, I was being rewarded for my activism. I got uh, nominated by someone who called me a bully and said that my activism wasn't inclusive. I got nominated by her for an MLK award um, at school. And so it was very jolting because the work sometimes, most of the time didn't really feel good. And it put me in a space that was like, um, I was compromising a lot of myself in order to like try to be the best nicest the best nicest activist that I could be. Um, and so, yeah. There's a lot of um, emotional labor that goes on, right? That nobody, I mean, you're receiving a lot of emotion, some of it really negative, you're having to process that. But at the same time, are you staying calm, Ruby? Um, at least in public, I mean, maybe, maybe at home you're doing whatever you need to do, right? But at least in public, are you staying calm? I think I am. I mean, it, this is definitely like a side of me that other people hadn't seen before or anticipated seeing from me. It definitely like surprised people. But the thing that I think hurt the most about people meeting these demands with anger was that these were experiences that um, the demands were born of experiences that the people who had a problem with the demands could not argue or fight because it it's not their lived experience. And the demands were, uh, I can't put the words to what I'm trying to say, but the demands were born of experiences of people saying enough, like this actually happened. Um, and I don't want to put up with it anymore. And I need you to make structural changes so that this doesn't happen to people anymore, because you can't just say that you're like, oh, look at our class, how the incoming class, how diverse it is. Look how many BIPOC students are in the class. But you can't do that and then subject them to the same stuff that I've been putting up with for three years. Um, you actually have to put in the work. And I guess another reason why it's so confusing is because now that work is like marketable. Now that work is like, oh, look at what our students do and look at the groups that they created and look at how much we care when it's like, huh? Like, put my name on there, <laughs> put my name on there then. Like, pay me for it. Like, you know what I mean? Um, it's, it's marketable. It's fashionable, right? We could call it fashionable. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's real. Right. And so we can, as institutions, right. I, I work for, a, a, an institution that's going through this, that received a letter. Um, we can market that we have changed our entire curriculum, decolonized the curriculum in a, in a semester, let's say, which is like totally not reasonable. Um, but if we haven't in earnest done that work, 
we are we are just selling something that isn't true and everyone's going to know it right because of activists like you that are in our program they're not going to just stop right the activism continues and so every new student that comes in if they continue to experience the same thing it doesn't matter that we're saying our students are part of this BIPOC group or we're producing this Latinx play, if, if the environment hasn't changed, the activism will continue. Yeah, it's just hard because it's all very personal. Yeah. Everything that these students experience and that their activism comes from, it's, it's very personal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Ruby, now, you, now there's a little bit of distance from the moment that you first submitted that list. Um, and you're in a way kind of on the other side of it. Uh, and it's, it sounds like you're almost experiencing a new batch of microaggressions uh, in a sense of you, you tell about somebody once called you a bully and now you're that same somebody's awarding you, uh, nominating you for an award. Uh, people once said that this is unnecessary and now they are valuing that thing. Um, and it, it, and because it is such a, a personal thing uh, to be an activist, uh, to advocate for others, uh, those those kind of flip flop moments can almost be taken as personal digs, right? Like it's 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 hard to separate yourself like that. Uh, you know, you you kind of almost want to, I'm sure, slap that award back in their face and be like, oh, now it's cool. Now I'm the good one, right? Uh, so, so it's, it's just, it's microaggressions just in an, under a different context, you know? So it's weird. So, but you did the big movement and whatnot. So how, what, what's the headspace now, now that you're on the other side of it, how, how do you kind of proceed and still navigate these, these little moments? I think moving forward what I've already noticed a lot it's a lot more than like being rewarded like it's like oh come do this internship now or come um be the artistic director for the student theater organization because now it, everybody wants to see change and they feel like I can do that and because um I'm so used to feeling responsible for making sure that like the change gets seen through it's always so hard for me to say no but the mindset I'm really trying to put myself in before I go back to school is like choosing uh, my own battles. And so I hope that I really do get the opportunity to like choose the battles that are worth fighting instead of trying to fight all of them. Because I think that I was like, you know, when you're like making tortillas by hand and you like spread the dough <laughs> all the way out. That's, that's what I was last year. Um, and I think what we're clapping about is that I made it out in one piece. That's how I feel. <laughs> That's how I feel inside. Like a lot of the times uh -huh. I don't even remember, I don't even remember things about that period of time because I'm so like dissociated from it almost mm -hmm. that um, I would really like to enjoy my last year and do everything in my power to like learn the word no and learn how to use it a little bit more so that I can pick the battles that um, are worth fighting that I think are worth fighting. You have to, you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of anyone else. Totally. I, I have a question. So you talked about that moment where you were hesitant to push the send button on the email. If you could go back and counsel yourself before you hit that button, or what would you say to someone who's about to hit that send button? Uh, what would it be? What, what, would, what would you tell yourself or what would you tell someone who's about to do it? I think what I would say to myself personally is that your ancestors are with you and like so many people who, um, cause it's like, a, it's a small thing it's one email to one group of faculty members and it happened all over the country. Um, but I don't know, something along the lines of like, 
I mean, like what I remember thinking in that moment was like, uh, like I said, like you're doing this so that somebody else doesn't have to do it. And I guess just kind of like reminding that person that like, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun. Um, but it's going to lead to like, what I feel really good about now is knowing that like, there is a document in PDF that no one can like erase, like no one can erase that that happened and like work has to get done. And so it's just, it's worth it. Thank you. Um, you know, as, as a white guy, right? Like, thank you. And thanks to all the people like you that are doing this across the nation um, for the good of yourselves for the good of myself, for the good of the industry that we all care so much about, that we invest our lives in working in. So let's uh, let's get together and try and make it better and, and, and grow as an industry, as a culture, as, as a people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what we need to understand is like, th this isn't a personal attack on any individual or on our industry as a whole. Uh, just as we know that there were a lot of letters written and a lot of lists of demands written, there was even more that were not, uh, even more organizations out there that did not have the Ruby Perez's in their organizations to come out and be a voice. Um, so in a way for those like Ruby that were a voice for their specific organization, they're also acting, I'm sure, as a voice for other organizations. There are other BIPOC members of our industry that are going to hear this story and, and get inspiration from Ruby and be motivated by what she did, what her classmates did. Um, and even then, that may still not provide them with enough courage to write up a list of their own to their organization. But I'm sure that it will provide them with enough courage to be better advocates for themselves, um, to, to use Ruby, Ruby's metaphor, to not become that thinned out tortilla uh, and, and, and to help mold themselves into the better tortilla. Uh, to use my own metaphor, we have arepas. I really <laughs> I really suck at making arepas. Um, I leave that to my mom. Uh, but I understand the difficulty there. Um, so Ruby, why don't, why don't you close us out with those that didn't have the courage that are certainly no, not at all lesser than any one of us here or anyone of us listening. Um, those that are still dealing with the difficulties especially now as our industry is ramping up, which on the one hand, we're all very happy to go back to that, to that art form that we love, to, to go back to what we're most passionate about. Um, but as we go into round two, version 2.0, however you want to look at it, um, uh, what, what, are your, what are some parting words that you give to those people? Well, what I love about version 2.0 is that it can be anything we want it to be. Um, and I have a lot of hope. Another thing I was thinking about, like with the tortilla metaphor is that like, you can, we're also like, what this work does is it sets the stage for like new, like flavors and toppings, like things we've never seen before to like come in, you know what I mean? Like who knows what these programs are going to be filled with in the years to come. Like things we, we can't even imagine, you know what I mean? And so I think that um, just any way that people can work to like set the stage for like a new identity to come into the space that like we haven't worked with before or haven't learned how to accommodate for because that's not our own identity and we don't think about the barriers that that person might experience. I think that any way that people can continue to work to like make space for the, what is yet to come is good. And for people who maybe didn't have the opportunity to like, you know, use their voice or speak up or say enough, what I would, I mean, I'm in no way like a theater professional or anything, but I would just say like, 
find the spaces that find the spaces that make you love what you do and the people who make you feel at home because I think that everyone deserves to feel like safe in their work and I know that like especially with theater there's like a lot of like oh push yourself out of the box and like um do this thing that's different and uncomfortable but like it's really nice to know that like you have those means of playing in a safe space and so um I know that that's a lot easier said than done and that um there's definitely something about me being in an educational setting that made you know like sending a list of demands like a lot less stakes than like if I was out in the professional world and maybe I could lose my whole career because of this one action, but like, um, yeah, I think that there's something about, um, places that are safe and people who, um, make you feel like the art is returning home to yourself. That is really, really valuable and beautiful. So. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you. Thank you so much to the listeners out there. I am bowing down to Ruby here for continuing to show us your courage, even through this recording here, uh, for continuing to be the great advocate that you have come to be, and I'm sure will continue to be. Uh, We look forward to not only your career as the next up and coming movie star, but as well as your, your, your voice. And I look forward to seeing and, and hearing where you go. I look forward to these wonderful food analogies of tortillas uh, and toppings and flavors. And uh, just makes me want to go enjoy a good taco. Street tacos are the best. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Ruby, for your time. Thank you for joining us on this pod bar. Uh, please do keep in touch. Uh, we'd love to catch up. Um, but I cannot thank you enough for your story you for and, and sharing me. with you. Thank you. Indeed, the platform thank you. to tell the story is huge. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Agree. Thanks, Ruby. And thanks for your courage. I, I appreciate that Herman pointed out that this is continued courage on your part. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the rest of our listeners out there, uh, please uh, join us in, in showing us Uh, Ruby uh, some more support and uh, chatting with us on social media uh, emailing us and for now uh, stay tuned to the last call to the next part of the series thank you hope you all enjoyed part one of our call to action series stay tuned for the next part where we will look at the same topic from the recipient's perspective (laughs) 